Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Limps, dirigibles, zeppelins, airships, lighter-than-air craft. These are all kind of versions of the same thing. And in your mind, they probably exist in the past. In fact, the 1930s in some ways was a peculiar kind of heyday of that technology. Uh, But they also exist in fiction, uh, particularly steampunk and something new called silkpunk, very attracted to the idea uh, of those beautiful airships moving slowly across the sky. But airships are probably also in your future. They're probably in the skies of your future. They are one of the better chances to do zero carbon aviation. We're going to explain all that right after the news. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygen it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome. Welcome to our show. Today's show is about, I think the best general category term is airships. That would probably include blimps and zeppelins and dirigibles. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm awaiting my full education about this topic. Um, so today on the show, we're going to begin with speculative fiction, looking at blimps and their various cousins, uh, and then move into the reality of, of blimps. Blimps are very much a part of the future, particularly as there's an ongoing quest for carbon zero um, aviation. Well, blimps, that's kind of what they are. Uh, or at least potentially that's what they are. So we'll be talking about all of that. But as I say, we're going to begin with speculative fiction. And let me just say one more thing about doing that before I introduce the guest, which is that, you know, when the pandemic started, we really looked at previous speculative fiction about pandemics. And it was amazing how many big themes and small details had been anticipated by these writers. I mean, these writers kind of specialize in seeing around corners. It made me think that, in the future, when there are vast policy challenges, 
um, that require blue ribbon panels. Among the people seated seated on those panels should be speculative fiction people because they're just, I mean, in the case of the pandemic, it came right down to somebody had written a prize-winning speculative fiction short story about people baking a lot during a pandemic lockdown, which is exactly what happened. It was, it was even that granular. All right. So enough. Uh, joining us now is Ken Liu, a speculative fiction author and futurist. He's the author of The Dandelion Dynasty, an epic fantasy which features airships. Uh, and um, he's going to kind of introduce us uh, to the way blimps live both in reality and in the imagination. Ken Liu, welcome to our show. Hi, Colin. Thanks for having me. So let's just begin with you and blimps. We, we should first of all say that the minute Carmen Baskoff proposed this show, uh, you know, reflexive creature of habit that I am, I said, well, steampunk. <laughs> that was my immediate reaction. <laughs> blimps and steampunk are just kind of inexorably limped, linked. I, I know what you're calling your, uh, your genre is a slight adaptation of that, and we'll come to it. But there's a way in which blimps do call out to a certain kind of imaginative writer, and you're one of those writers. Say what the allure is. I think a lot of it has to do with the romance of air travel by airship. Uh, there's something deeply romantic about airships uh, because, you know, airplanes are complicated things, um, and especially modern jets. It, it's hard for us to even get a hold of how they work. But blimps are easy. They are, you know, everybody has played with balloons. We, we know how they stay afloat. We, we understand how they do what they do. And there's something very comforting about flying in a machine that's lighter than air um, and that feels like a cruise ship in the sky. I will say on the one occasion that I was up in the Goodyear blimp, my primary reaction was, wow, this technology looks like it has not changed substantially since 1935. I think that's pretty accurate, um, largely because we haven't had to do much with it. I mean, uh, it's not entirely true in the sense that a lot of modern airships actually are hybrid uh, vehicles. They, they're they not strictly lighter than air vehicles. Some modern airships are actually heavier than air. They just use um, the lift gas to reduce the amount of uh, power needed to stay aloft. They actually generate lift uh, very similar to airplanes. But yes, you're right. For the most part, the technology has not changed significantly. Yeah, there's this big wooden wheel. <laughs> I, thought, <laughs> I haven't been up this high in something that had a wooden wheel uh, in my life, and it was a little bit disconcerting, but only briefly. So one of the things that you're attracted to, maybe we should talk about the, the genre you've kind of coined here, and that's silk punk. Um, and, and within that is an attraction to what? Well, biomimicry is one word for it, right? Maybe talk about that. Yeah, sure. So uh, I invented the word uh, silk punk to describe my novels, essentially. They're um, epic fantasy novels in which engineers are heroes, not wizards. Um, and the idea is that uh, there's a technology vocabulary in my novels that are uh, derived, that's derived from uh, primarily East Asian models. So there's a sense in which the materials are drawn from nature, so bamboo, silk, uh, paper, etc. And the methods of engineering are based on imitating natural forms, birds, uh, fish, um, uh, so on and so forth. Um, and uh, I describe this entire technology aesthetic 
Um, and one of the most important ideas is the sense of trying to build technology that's in harmony with nature rather than uh, a strictly conquest of nature. It's a sense that the human made objects can flow and fit within the patterns of nature as though nature had evolved these forms by itself. And and there's some, you know, I, I mean, that, that obviously, obviously is a flight of imagination, but it's not entirely a flight of imagination. There's ways in which, you know, the, the in real life uh, airship industry kind of thinks about the same things in a way. I mean, the original, as I understand it, uh, if we go back to the 1930s, the gas bags were cow guts. Um, exactly. We, they were actually made of just insane numbers of cows. Uh, and even now, uh, Boris Pasternak, one of the pioneers of modern airship travel, uh, he was looking at the problem of – I hadn't really thought about this, but if you use an airship to transport some really, really heavy cargo to some remote place in Alaska that can't be reached any other way and you drop it there – you have to figure out how you're going to keep your airship from just sailing off into space because it doesn't have it. <laughs> That's so, right. But I, I read, uh, I think it was in the New Yorker article that we'll be talking about later, that he thought about the problem for decades studying submarine technology and the mm-hmm. swim bladders of bluefish. So, mm-hmm. Ken, there's your biomimicry right there. Absolutely. That's one of the most um, uh, attractive things about airships to me, you know, as a technologist. Uh, I, I think often about how airships are really just submarines in a different medium. Um, and a lot of the techniques and uh, ideas we learn from building submarines are applicable to airships. Um, and, but you don't normally think of these two mediums as, as you know, the same water and air, but, but they really are. Um, the vehicles that navigate them, airships and submarines, follow very similar principles. Right. I have to say, having watched the newly released version of Dune, they actually have an airplane that kind of, or some kind of air vehicle that kind of mimics dragonfly wings yeah, or something. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> that's such a great vehicle. I love watching that that machine. Yeah, there's your biomimicry again. So, I mean, I think that what you're saying is, uh, part of what you're saying is that um, we often divorce the notion of beauty from the notion of efficacy when we're thinking about modes of transportation. Not to say that a certain airplane can't in its own way be beautiful, but, you know, it's not necessarily a term that I would attach to a 747 I was getting on. Um, and, and one of the things that you're looking at is, is there a way to create things that are serviceable but also beautiful against the sky. I just want to point out that uh, your bamboo and silk airships move uh, by means of giant feathered oars. And in your own words, you say, when lit up from inside at night, the airships pulsate through the Empyrean like a jellyfish in an abyss of stars. You know, you don't hear that kind of rhetoric coming out of JetBlue. (laughs) Maybe they should try that. (laughs) So beauty and aesthetics, that's part of it for you, right? Definitely. Um, I mean, I think we actually intuitively feel that way. Um, Technologies that succeed often succeed not just because they're more efficient, but because they are more beautiful and and they feel good to us. Um, That aspect of it cannot be ignored. Um, A lot of times beauty is a rule of thumb, a kind of heuristic that we've evolved in our minds to find, to detect things that are uh, better for us that fit nature. You know, uh, to give you a very simple example, um, a lot of people feel an innate sense of beauty in what are what's called vernacular architecture. So that's architecture based on the way people in the place traditionally built things using local materials, as opposed to a very 
um, postmodern or modernist sense of uh, brutalism. Uh, that's the kind of blocky, concrete-based architecture that off- that's often used for institutional buildings and government buildings that a lot of people find uncomfortable and, and <laughs> ugly. Um, there's actually a lot of intuition behind that. The reason we prefer the vernacular is because it is often more in harmony with the environment and better for us, despite all the arguments about why the brutalism style of architecture is better. And I think in other technologies, it's the same. We shouldn't ignore our sense of beauty and our intuition that something fits better with the world we live in. Um, if it fits better, it probably, if we feel it fits better, it probably does. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. There's a, you're from, I know you're from Connecticut, although I don't know where in Connecticut you're from, but uh, at Trinity College in Hartford, uh, there's a, a life sciences section center. I think it's called the Jacobs Life Sciences Center, and it's a piece of neo-brutalist architecture. And and when I walked into it, my immediate reaction was that the message of this building was that the individual life, whether it's bacterium or human or anything in between, is worth absolutely nothing. You know, it was this life sciences center that was kind of antithetical uh, to the idea of life. And it seems with biomimicry, with the kind of thing that you're writing about, the kind of blimps uh, or airships uh, in in your books, you're sort of going in the other direction. How can we uh, sort of thin out the veil between what's alive and what's being used by living creatures? That's absolutely right. I mean, airships offer a lot of advantages over heavier-than-air um aircraft, uh, you know, airships are able to take off and land with very little infrastructure. Um, in the, you know, heyday of airship technology, a mast, a mooring mast was all that's needed. So if you're talking about delivering um, supplies to remote locations or to places where you don't want to rip up the land to build a giant airport, airships are, you know, there's no competition against an airship. Airships are slower, for sure, compared to jet airplanes. But do we actually need to get goods around the globe that quickly? Uh, I mean, you know, with all the supply chain issues we're experiencing now, maybe we need to rethink our obsession with moving, uh, you know, your Amazon purchase one day earlier to you. Um, maybe that's actually not the best way for us to spend our energy and to um, devote our resources. Yeah, and and maybe not that much slower if you sort of factor logistics. Uh, I, I read, for example, one estimate that a flight from downtown Seattle to the center of Vancouver uh, in one of the new airships, specifically the Airlander 10, which we're going to talk about later in the show, we take four hours and 12 minutes uh, now allowing for airport transfers, check-in, security processes, all that kind of stuff. The same trip via current airline service would take three hours and six minutes. Um, so it's not, you know, there's not a huge, there's, there's basically an hour's difference if, in fact, you can just get into your airship, you know, on the top of a building in downtown Seattle or down by the wharf or something like that uh, and go where you're going. Uh, that starts to cut down on the, the time differences. That's right. And, and also, you know, uh, we've proven that we don't actually need to travel faster than a certain um, a certain amount. I mean, uh, supersonic uh, passenger service has really not taken off. Uh, we don't actually necessarily want to fly that fast. Um, sometimes fast enough is all we need. And airships can be very competitive. 
So as a speculative fiction writer, you would have an interesting perspective on the question. I mean, obviously, there was this time of real sort of technological and engineering foment directed at airships and it, airships, and it seems to stretch from somewhere in the 1920s through the 1930s. I'm not saying it stops after that, but you know, I, my sense is there's a lot of excitement about it. People are trying different things. Uh, countries, nations are trying different things. And, and then, you know, from there, it's maybe a little bit of surveillance and a lot of advertising and then some more surveillance. And once in a <laughs> while, right. uh, Charlie Monaghan, an old uh, friend of mine, was uh, saying today that there, he remembers in the late 50s, they used them to watch for sharks along the Jersey Shore, you know. But it, it just it became a much more of a niche item. Now, it seems as though, particularly based on the conversation we're having right now and that we're going to have on this show today, it didn't have to be. Um, it isn't necessarily true that specific technology and specific destinies are inextricably linked t- together. So do you have thoughts about like why we're not using a hell of a lot of airships, blimps, et cetera, right now? Well, you know, um, one of the things that I, I did in my career was um, as a uh, litigation uh, specialist for high-tech cases. And as part of that, I had to study the history of technology very closely. And one conclusion I've drawn is that the particular um, technology ladder that we climbed up, the, the path that we actually took to get to where we are, there's a lot of accidents um, involved. Uh, it, it, it's not a determined path. Um, if you reset everything back to 1920, for example, and just run it forward again, things could have evolved very differently. So for example, right today, we all think of electrical uh, electric cars as a new technology, but it, it really isn't. If you go back to the turn of the last century, uh, around 1900, um, you would have seen that about a third of the vehicles in New York City, for example, were actually electric cars. Um, and a lot of people thought electric cars would win uh, over steam cars and internal combustion cars. Uh, it turns out that, you know, as a result of discovery of cheap oil in Texas, um, in the U.S. at least, um, the the success of internal combustion engine cars became what appear to be inevitable, but it really isn't. It's an accident. Um, airships follow very similar uh, patterns. Um, you, 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 it's not obvious uh, from the moment back in 1920s that airships would lose to airplanes because, as I mentioned, they have a lot of advantages. They don't require the kind of infrastructure that airplanes do, and they um, often are safer and provide uh, better lift capacity. But as a result of um, the blockade um, imposed on Germany, uh, they couldn't get helium. So they ended up using hydrogen for their uh, uh, zeppelins. And then, of course, you had the great disaster of Hindenburg. Uh, That, I think, had a lot to do with turning the public off from developing airships. Um, Even though in a different historical uh, timeline, we would have developed safe helium-based zeppelins and we could have just kept on going down that way. And who knows where we would be now? Um, you know, actually, I, we did a piece. I just want to go back to electric vehicles for a second because we um, actually discovered that in the early 1900s, as you're saying, there were early uh, EV prototypes that were very popular with women 
mm-hmm. and, part, right. and partly because they were easier to start than the kind of brute force uh, uh, that was needed to, to start a combustion engine. Uh, and for that reason, they kind of got gendered, to use the term now. And that may have actually also interfered with their uh, adoption. So That's right. Yeah. There's a lot of cultural expectation and cultural um, limits to technology uh, adaptation. And it's it's just really strange and interesting to go back and see what tiny things ended up making such a big difference. So uh, I'm going to I was going to ask the other guests this, but I think you're you're a better person to think about it. So we're going to be making a, a pretty compelling argument, I think, as we go along here today for the fact that that airships could begin to introduce something resembling zero carbon aviation, something that's desperately needed in the world today. Uh, obviously, the emissions from a, a conventional aviation right now are just a gigantic problem and a gigantic uh, thrust for the climate change problem. Um, is there anything to be worried about on the other side? And specifically, it occurred to me as I was reading about this that one of the things that blimps or airships would be good at would be transporting, say, I don't know, oil rigging equipment to a place that's not accessible by car or truck. Uh, there are certain places, there are a lot of unreachable places in the world, the places that you can't get to easily by a boat or by any kind of land vehicle. Uh, and I'm wondering about that. I mean, in some ways, nature does us a favor by keeping our meddling, polluting, climate wrecking ways uh, out of certain wilderness areas or obscure places. Uh, if, if airships solve the problem, might there be a potential downside? That is a great question. Uh, you know, this is the law of unintended consequences. Sometimes by pushing a technology that's clean, you actually end up making dirty technologies cheaper and, and therefore more economically viable. Um, I'm not terribly um, worried about that potential in this case, however, um, mainly because uh, for something like mining and uh, offshore drilling, um, the, bring the equipment to remote places is, is just one small piece of it. Trying to build the transportation infrastructure to bring the extracted resources out is by far the bigger piece. Um, and airships will not make that piece of it any cheaper. So I'm not terribly concerned about that potential. But you're right. In general, we, we do need to think through the consequences of making things, quote unquote, cleaner, whether that actually opens up new avenues of making dirty technologies cheaper and, and therefore more viable. We're talking right now to Ken Liu, one of several speculative fiction authors uh, in, uh, who, who incorporates the idea of a blimp or an airship uh, into his writing. He's the author of The Dandelion Dynasty, uh, an epic fantasy that does feature airships. Uh, and we're going to take a little break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk a little bit about the state uh, of blimps, airships, etc. right now. And from the abattoir, I saw the same things you saw. But, Jay, when do you take a moment to talk about the important, unimportant things? What do you mean by that? Well, you know, the stuff most people don't talk about because technically it doesn't matter. Here, let me take a moment real quick. Hit me. Mm. 
all this talk about the debt ceiling and climate change, but nobody talks about the fact that nobody in here knows one person who drives or operates a blimp. You say a blimp? Yes, a blimp. Why do we not know who drives it? Like when someone says, I'm a driver, you don't say, oh, car or blimp? <laughs> who is flying these things? I mean, they could fly a plane or a jet. Nah, I want to fly a slow-ass dildo across the sky. <laughs> For real, I I've asked people all across the country that not one person knows a blimp driver. And this might be a dumb question to ask you, but are we sure blimps are real? I'm pretty sure they're real, Chris. Exactly. Pretty sure. <laughs> Plus, blimps are slow as hell. You ever seen a fast blimp? No, because that is a missile. <laughs> that aired on Weekend Update of Saturday Night Live. Uh, we are now going to establish beyond uh, all question and all doubt that blimps are real. Uh, and to do that, joining us now are Jean-Marie Laskus, a uh, journalist who wrote a piece about, uh, about these kinds of uh, conveyances, airships for The New Yorker uh, in 2016. Uh, also uh, joining us is Nick Allman, chief operating officer uh, of hybrid air vehicles. He can assert that blimps are real because they make them. Um, and uh, But Jean-Marie, I'm going to start with you. Uh, as you investigated this for your original piece, um, maybe just to help Chris Red out a little bit, what, what are the defining characteristics of airships? What makes an airship an airship as opposed to something else that goes through the sky? Oh, sure thing. Hi, and thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so basically, you, the, an airship is like the umbrella term. Mm. Um, and underneath airship falls several different types of them. Um, a blimp is usually small, no internal structure, and is basically a balloon powered by something and with a rudder to steer it. That's your most basic form. Um, then you have two different kinds of um, what you think of when you think of an airship, larger and transporting people or goods. And there are really two types, non-rigid and rigid. Rigid are the type that were built by Ferdinand van Zuppelen back in the day. That was the kind of classic thing you saw. It has like a rib cage inside this giant, giant structure of balloon. Um, but actually the lift is by individual cells within that rib structure. And that's, um, that is the old style of, of airship. The Hindenburg, for example, was rigid. Um, and typically people will call them Zeppelins after Zeppelin or dirigibles. These terms are pretty much um, interchangeable. Um, but when you move over to the non-rigid airships, that's what you're seeing mostly being developed today by um, companies who want to try and get this this business off the ground. Um, and there is no internal structure. They're lighter. They're um, easier to build. You know, you're just basically sewing a big old balloon on the ground. Um, <laughs> and that's kind of where the technology mostly is, with a few notable exceptions. Yeah, you know, and before we bring Nick in, I do want to say that um, your piece, uh, I, I thought, benefited from the introduction of a character who easily could have been walking around in the pages of one of Ken Liu's novels. His name is Igor Pasternak. Uh, he, I mean, I, watching the video of him with his big cigars and his suspenders and his kind of Eric Bogosian hair and stuff like that. <laughs> I was thinking, I mean, it, it almost doesn't seem possible that there's somebody uh, who seems so determinedly the kind of quirky person you might expect to be a, a blimp or airship visionary. But just mention a little bit about Pasternak and what you learned about him. 
Oh, sure. Yeah, he's exactly the character <laughs> you imagine, but then some. Um, he's, you know, like so many of these folks, obsessed with airships and has been since he was a kid in the Ukraine and saw a picture of a cargo airship that had never really been developed. And he becomes fixated on that really to this day. Um, you know, he's in his late fifties now and he's still at it and he's had quite a bit of success, um, with his blimps. He started building, building them in, in Russia for like advertising. And then, you know, it's kind of the same old story with no money, nothing comes to the U S to try and start that business here and, and really make it's a success at it. Um, but they're advertising blimps. They're small, they're just blimps. Um, and that's not his dream. He wants this cargo airship. That is his, that is his dream. Um, but even his advertising business switches over to a surveillance business as soon as it's September 11th, 2001. Um, now everybody wants surveillance. A lot of his blimps are now used for surveillance, but he's got a great company, but he wants the big dream to come true. He ends up getting a lot of capital from, uh, from the U S uh, military to develop the Dragon Dream, which is about a football field long, 747 wide. Um, that is just the prototype for his dream. The prototype is this large, giant jumbo structure. Um, and it's rigid, like the old Zeppelins. Very controversial today, rigid. Um, and he develops this thing. He actually builds it. And he actually proves his landing gear system and more importantly, how to solve the problem you were talking about before of dropping off cargo and then it shoots to the moon. He comes up with a whole system how to, how to solve that problem. He tests it out in California where his, um, his hangars are. It's successful. He proves all of his principles. It's huge, roaring. Everyone's jumping for joy. His whole you know, giant team. And um, then this is 2013. Um, I'd say right the day before the investors were to come and see this miracle fly um, in the morning, Igor gets up and goes to the hangar and here the roof had collapsed onto his dragon dream dream and destroyed it. Mm. So everything fell apart, everything. But Igor is that guy who will never give up any certainly hasn't all right so um i, I want to bring still at it. yeah i want to bring into the conversation somebody else who's at it um and, and that is nick allman a chief operating officer of hybrid air vehicles uh they are going to be known uh i think primarily for the so-called airlander uh and so we want to find out a little bit more about that nick welcome to the show oh thank you very much it's a really uh Interesting discussion so far, I thought. <laughs> all right, good. Yeah. Well, you're going to make it more interesting. So, um, yeah. first of all, describe the Airlander to us. To tell, what kind of vehicle are we talking about here? Okay. So, uh, as we've um, neatly been introduced here, it's a it's a non-rigid, so it's a um, there's no internal structure. So, if, if you can imagine the shape of two conventional airships, so two cylindrical bodies that were 300 feet long and about 70 feet in diameter. If you took those and you pushed them together in the same way as two bubbles, uh, when they go together, you create a um, effectively a structure inside, a diaphragm joining those two bubbles. 
And in fact, if you could see inside Airlander, you'd see effectively what we've created is two long, thin bubbles stuck together. Um, and that creates a really strong structure for us to then work from. And that's, it, this is a, a key, you know, it, it needs to be efficient. Um, it needs to be relatively easy to manufacture, et cetera. But the key thing we do is then we use that shape to develop aerodynamic lift when we fly and that's the probably the biggest difference between the conventional airship and what airlander does so broadly we sit on we'd sit on the ground and we'd be heavier than air and then a bit like an aircraft we would we use a conventional takeoff so the aircraft moves forward generates aerodynamic lift and flies around using the aerodynamic lift primarily to to work with the, the lift from the helium. So effectively what we're doing is we're taking the helium lift and making that carry the aircraft around and the aerodynamic lift carries the payload around. And that way we're much, much more efficient than an aircraft. Let's talk about payload for a second because, in fact, uh, we've already talked a little bit about the use of these for cargo delivery, uh, particularly to areas that aren't conventionally accessible. But there are a lot of other ways that these could be used, uh, and you certainly have not in rule, not ruled out and have, in fact, embraced the idea uh, of these as some kind of passenger service. I've seen pictures of the, uh, of the cabin. <laughs> It's very comfortable yep. and nice. I want to go somewhere in an airlander, but but say more about that. How how viable is that going to be? Is it going to be like the Roy family in succession are the only people who can kind of use it, or could just an average schmuck like me wind up uh, traveling that way? So I think um, on the first look at the commercial side of airlander, we started to look at who might be early adopters because there's no there's no doubt you know the first few aircraft that are available. Um, it's a very different um, situation to when this becomes a normal thing that everybody's used to seeing. So initially, we looked at um, tourism on a, a luxurious scale, um, where you might take um, a small group of people, um, probably with cabins on board, and take them on a two or three day cruise to go and see something that is almost impossible to go and see at the moment. So you could, for example, go on a on a safari um, while having your maybe you'd be able to stay on board, stay floating over the over the plains in Africa, um, and the whole time being able to look out it through huge windows that are fundamentally the all of the the side of the uh, of the of the area you'd be sitting in would be all windows and that's certainly where we thought we'd break into the commercial market and it and it i think may still be the first few aircraft what of course has happened particularly over the last couple of years is a huge move towards trying to take carbon out of aviation i mean it, as we said earlier in the in the discussion you know production of carbon is a huge problem for aviation um what we found by um, coming up with a slightly different approach to the the part that people go in in the aircraft, a bit, bit underneath our hull, uh, is we create a huge space. And in that space, we can create enough space for 90 to 100 people who have 
everybody has an aisle seat. Um, everybody has a great view. And you can travel in a totally different environment. So as we were talking, as you were talking earlier, it may take a little longer, but it's a totally different experience and one that we think people will be able to in, either enjoy or um, potentially work in um, because you know, that environment will be so different. And so that's generated a lot of interest. We're um, deep in discussions with a number of um, airlines who are looking at using the aircraft in that shuttle between places where the current, which are currently a little bit difficult. I mean, I, from. I think it's a trade that a lot of people would make. I would make that trade um, just to, as you say, it's, I wouldn't have to necessarily deal with, with an airport. Maybe I can get uh, into the airship uh, at the docks in Seattle or, or, or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't have to be dealing with all kinds of things that I hate about air travel. Uh, and I would have a very pleasant trip and there would be beautiful views. But also, a lot of us are having to deal now with personal responsibility and guilt. And so I, you can I, these may not be up-to-date figures and feel free to correct them. But the thing that I read uh, about a flight, a hypothetical flight from Seattle to Vancouver would generate 4.61 kilograms of CO2 per passenger, a conventional um, airline service, it would be 53.15 kilograms per passenger. So, I mean, you know, you would be, that that would be more than 10 times the emissions uh, of your airship. Completely. And when you look at the the other ideas that are around for reducing the carbon footprint of aviation, they are generally knocking a few percent off here and a few percent there. You know, what we're able to offer here is ways to make huge inroads into that carbon production that is such an issue. Um, getting that understood by a wider audience isn't is not necessarily easy. Um, going back to the question of, you know, why isn't the, why is the world not full of airships already? And there aren't really any good answers to that other than what you need is the technology needs to be at a point where it's ready, um, which we believe it is. Um, but you also have to move past producing one-off prototypes, which we've done, and, and be bold enough to go, right, we believe this is going to be a, a huge commercial success and we have to bring that commercial success to fruition. Um, you've got to, and that's what we're doing at the moment is working really hard to make sure that these do become something that people are just used to seeing and become more normal. So Jean-Marie Laskus, I want to bring you back into the conversation. Uh, in the piece that you wrote, you looked at a, a lot of different um, versions of the same vision, uh, but those versions included different purposes, different uses of, of airship technology. Can you say a little bit more about that? I mean, we just heard a vision of passenger service, but what are the different kinds of things that you found uh, entre entrepreneurs in this area talking about? Well, that's so interesting um, to hear Nick talk because that is what I wanted to, I wanted that dream of passenger <laughs> um, airships like that. I just wanted somebody to tell me, yes, you're going to have that. I mean, I couldn't let go of it, but um, inevitably when I talk to the engineers, so much of the focus is on um, cargo transport or surveillance, mostly cargo transport, that big dream. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that, 
the main issue hit everyone was uh, coming up against over and over again was the enormous amount of capital that you need to raise just to build the prototype. Um, and so where are these investors all going to come from and how they're all fun. They're all sort of fighting for the same government dollars around the world. <laughs> so that seemed to be like, um, you know, the, the stopping point for so many of them, but you even have like Lockheed Martin is been working on one for 25 years at, in their skunk works operation, like super secret underground crazy thing. Um, and you know, it's interesting because in 2016, when I was visiting, um, it was going to be ready. It was going to be ready. The prototype, everything we're supposed to see this. And, you know, I haven't heard, I haven't seen anything from them yet. And you kind of hear that a lot. You, you get excited and then everybody goes dark for a while. So (laughs) it's like, I don't know if they're waiting for the investments to come through or the technology technology isn't quite where they want it to be but um it's uh it just feels like we're on the verge of something this great dream and i'm so happy to hear that the airline airlander is thinking of this as commercial um but i'm just like wondering is that a viable how how do you how i guess i would ask nick this is it Mm -hmm. how do you imagine a viable business like do you need the cargo airship giant version in order to support the um, no, in, you well, know, passenger vehicles? I think the, the interesting thing, and I think things have changed in the last few years. Um, I, th- I think you know the people are now prepared to talk about flying more slowly to produce less carbon. People are prepared to think of different ways of doing things. I mean, the, I mean the the small electric EV um aircraft taxis and things you know, all these things are now beginning to be looked at more seriously and i think what we've demonstrated to ourselves and our investors is that there is a good commercial uh, model for building reasonably large numbers of uh, aircraft primarily for the commercial market um, at what we call our airlander 10 size, so our initial starting vehicle, so a 10-ton lift vehicle. Um, and that stands on its own as a really good commercial proposition, both for us as as a manufacturer, but more obvious, obviously more importantly for our customers, is that it's clear that people are going to be able to offer, pe- offer similar price tickets, producing much lower carbon, um, and they'll still be making money. And unfortunately, in the world, that's that's the drive. We may have dreams and think things are a really good idea, but unless people are going to make money out of them, things don't happen. And I think that's where we see the biggest change is it's now relatively easy to demonstrate that this is going to work. And yes, we are have been in a phase where finding that funding for the final part of the of the productionization, uh, yeah, that takes time. All right, we're gonna get, we, we're just gonna pause the conversation here for two seconds. We're gonna we just have to do a yep. very very quick break. We'll come back with Jean Marie and with Nick uh, after this.
The technical producer of today's show, as always, is our technical producer, Kat Pastor. And this show is being produced by former Where We Live producer, uh, Carmen Baskoff, uh, who's currently uh, living in Brussels as a double agent under the name Bridget von Hammersnark. Uh, You know, I probably wasn't supposed to say that. Um, Kat, maybe we can edit that out for the podcast or something like that so she doesn't get killed. Um, All right. So we're back. We're talking about airships, uh, which includes blimps, dirigibles, uh, zeppelins. You get the idea. Uh, And and joining us are two uh, people who have different kinds of expertise in them. Uh, Jean-Marie Laskus, a journalist who wrote about them for The New Yorker. Nick Allman, chief operating officer of hybrid air vehicles. So, uh, Jean Marie, looking also at the history uh, of these kinds of airships, I mean, in the 1930s, another thing that hurt them, and I was talking to Ken Liu about this earlier, like, what's the determinative path that either brings something to market and commonplace use or doesn't? I mean, one thing that hurt them, we have to be honest, is crashes, particularly the Hindenburg, that was the most documented one. It wasn't the worst one, but from about 1923 to about 1937, there were some pretty notable crashes of these kinds of craft. And that is going to erode confidence in them, I assume. Oh, most definitely. And certainly the Hindenburg, because it was captured on film, that is when the public just became, you know, completely like, oops, never mind. Um, But I do want to say, yeah, and there was, before that, there was the, in Britain, there was the R101. Um, That was a luxury liner designed to carry royalty across the British Empire. And that also crashed. Um, killing, that was like, killing the air minister. That was, that was tragic. Kill, uh, killing the British air minister yeah, who had been right. the, the propulsion behind the program. But, right. And 48 other people. So it was, you know, that was really tragic. But I do want to say, you know, if you look back at the early Zeppelins and how many flights, you know, 1,500 flights or something in, in 1914. So, you know, and even... All these things, like in the U.S., we were designing flying aircraft carriers and we built them, two of them, um, that were supposed to release fleets of, I don't know, Sparrowhawks, fighter planes. um, And we built them, but they crashed in storms. So, yeah, the technology now, though, you know, just think about it in terms of satellite capability and and anticipating weather. I mean, it's really different now. Um, but boy, all those flights they made successfully, mm-hmm. and it was just as a matter of that's all there was. There was no rigid aircraft. Good point. Um, in so, the 1900s, so yeah. So I want to switch over to Nick Allman for a second because we're we're close to running out of time. It seems to me that it takes a certain amount of of nerve to do something like this because, in fact, it's a technology that people don't have. Uh, quite the pre-existing relationship that they could. And because, you know, I mean, I don't know, a lot of people have had trouble getting these kinds of businesses, you should pardon the expression, off the ground. The legendary Roger Monk, who comes up at the minute you start reading up about this, I think he had four different companies that, that didn't quite make it. So so what gives you the guts to do something like this? What, what gives you the guts to, to, to start a company and believe you can get airships in the sky, viably commercial? Well, I, I, I guess I have to admit that I did work for Roger. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> and I, I mean that in a way that, so he, his, he was definitely an inspiration early on. So, I mean, and I have been involved in this now for uh, 20 years. So um, it obviously is really important to believe in what you're doing. And I don't think anybody involved in, in these sorts of things um you, know, you can't do that unless you fundamentally believe it. What we've 
been able to do is keep a team of people together who understand what we're trying to do. We've, we've been through the, the prototyping phase, um, which was really hard. Um, and we, we learned an unbelievable amount as everybody does when you're prototyping anything. Um, what you then get to is a point where you go, right, I now know this is going to work. I now know that it's going to do something in the world that you know, nobody else can do. We're going to provide a product that, that is at least initially without com competition. Um, and that's within our grasp. And then you, you turn then to a different problem. This, this isn't a problem of, of science or technology. It's a problem of financing fundamentally. And I think probably five years ago, we thought that would be hard but probably we didn't realize quite how hard that is. The world is not particularly interested in taking risks where the payback is six, seven, eight years away. Um, and so it's taken time. Um, but all the time where the, since we last talked to Gene, the, the, yeah, we have been working literally day and night to build that position that we now feel we're in where somebody can go yeah, right now I understand this. I can see this business model. Um, I can see this is going to be successful. Um, and those are, we're now talking to people who are able to help us through this next phase. We're almost out of time, but real quickly, could you consider give us a timeline? Like how soon might there be these kinds of things available for someone you know not involved with the, the initial prototype and the growth of the company? Uh, when could somebody expect to have some kind of access to one of your airships? I think we're probably looking at something like three years before you'll see uh, a production aircraft flying. Um, and then to ensure the safety of the product, we obviously have to spend uh, time testing that and getting our full aircraft type certification as you would for a Boeing 747. So um, it's probably the mid-2020s when people will be able to turn up somewhere buy a ticket and just go on a on a flight <laughs> well i can't wait i don't think i can wait that <laughs> long <laughs> work faster yeah. work faster nick uh we'll you know try. i'm 67 years old i've only got so much time left all right uh it's been great to talk to you uh, and to gene marie laskus and to ken Liu. thanks to all of you who listened uh and a special thanks to what did i say her name was <laughs> Bridget von Hemmersnark, our producer, who's living in Brussels right now and who's not at all Carmen Baskoff. Forget I ever said that.